Tim Haig Reads Books. Political diaries can be turgid and self-serving, or they can be witty and revealing. Chris Mullins' diaries are firmly in the second category. The final volume, A Walk on Part, is brilliantly insightful, satisfyingly indiscreet, tender and tough, and marvelously resonant for today's politics. Chris had a front row seat on the circus that was New Labour. Tim met Chris at his publisher's offices in London and talked about the historic landslide election of the Labour government in 1997, Rupert Murdoch, lost leaders, and why Chris has a black and white television in his London flat. This is Tim Haig Reads Books, and my book this time is A Walk on Part by Chris Mullin, which is the third volume of uh, Chris Mullin's Political Diaries. I'm with Chris in the offices of his publisher, Profile Books. Um, you were MP for Sunderland South from 87 to 2010. And if I'm honest, I mainly knew you for two reasons um, before the publication of the diaries, which was the, uh, the, the books, uh, the f- most famous of which is A Very British Coup that was turned into a TV series, by, written by Alan Plater, wasn't it? Uh, uh, the the you, screenplay was, yes, I wrote the book. You, well, you, you complain about that in, in the diaries, that somebody's referred to it as Alan Plater's A Very British Coup. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's, that's about... Because I met Alan Plater once, and he said to me, all writers are thieves. Thought, well, <laughs> he, did, he did a very good job with my novels, I'm not complaining. But also we know you, or I, I knew you most, as a, a campaigner against, uh, against miscarriages of justice, which was, I think, your, your, what made you most well-known in, in Britain. The Boeing of Six, the Guildford Four, and the and, like. And the Carl Bridgewater yeah, one. And the Carl well. Bridgewater case. Um, I, I read the first volume of your diaries, View from the Foothills, when it came out, loved it to bits, and that one was your years as a junior minister for, for Tony Blair. And, and now we get the beginning. Political diaries come out in a strange order, like Star Wars films. The book starts off, I think, on, on the very first page with the death of John Smith. Um, is, is that a pivotal moment in, in British politics? How different would things have been if he had not died? Well, I think Labour would still have won in 97. I, I certainly think that. Not by the same margin, but comfortably. Uh, Smithy was very conservative with the small c, cautious. So some things would have changed for the better. There'd have been uh, uh, a bit more, uh, uh, you know, a bit of basic social justice. There'd have been a minimum wage and uh, perhaps the tax credits and all that sort of thing. Uh, But he wouldn't have been radical in the sense that Blair was, nor would he... uh, He wouldn't have made some of the mistakes that New Labour made either. There'd have been no uh, um, love affair with rich men... uh, um, and uh, or always, to always Rupert Tory Murdoch. Yes, he wouldn't have. He wouldn't have made the trip to Hayman Island to, to uh, keep Rupert Murdoch happy. Uh, so it would have been different. Um, he he wouldn't probably have gone to such lengths to invest in education and health on the same scale as as Blair and Brown uh, eventually did either. But the other big thing, of course, if Smithy had been leader in 2003, nor would he have signed us up to the Iraq war. I think we can be fairly sure about that. That might have been a good thing. It would have been a very good thing. There's, so there's, there's a, sort of a slight theme of lost leaders in this. The other, the other figure who, uh, who is largely, he's never mentioned these days, who's almost a lost leader, is, is, is Robin Cook, who died in the course of the government. 
I, w- I wanted to ask you, do you think he was a busted flush, though, by the time, uh, by the time he died? Uh, no, I think he probably would have been invited back into a Gordon Brown government, even though he didn't get on particularly well with Gordon Brown. Uh, but as it happens, he died at the height of his powers when his prestige and credibility were at their absolute highest. And so he'll be remembered uh, with honour for forever. Why were you not the kind of politician who does get to the top? You're very smart. You've got enormous integrity. You're, you're a capable operator. And yet... Yeah, the, there was always that sense. You, you always had the sense that they were never going to promote you to the very big jobs, and I, I think that was that was the sense of the. the well, I was on the wrong side in the. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'll take that again. I was on the losing side in the civil war that rent the Labour Party in the late seventies and early eighties. In so my card was pretty you, much marked. From you, that you, time you wrote onwards. that you thought that. Uh, Labour would have been in a better position if, if they'd had Tony Benn as leader than, than the, they were um, having, having not done. Do you yeah, I think they'd still have lost the 83 uh, election if Tony, even if Tony Benn had been leader, but by a much lesser margin. And I think Thatcher would have been opposed ideologically and consistently uh, from the outset, uh, which she wasn't for much of the 80s because Labour was preoccupied with its own internal affairs. Um, but probably, since the tide of history was against us, uh, I'm not sure that Ben would have formed a government even in '87. I mean, there was a sort of there was a Labour awkward squad, the sort of Tam Diel and, and, and Frank Field and, and and that crowd. But that that really wasn't you. You were not awkward squad. You had some, uh, some a much more constructive approach. Well, my approach became. More constructive. Uh, uh, I mean, initially, when back in the late seventies, early eighties, things were quite fraught, and there was really a very clear division between left and right. And uh, um, but by the mid nineties, when we'd lost four general elections in a row, it was Tony Blair's opinion, and it was mine too, uh, that we couldn't even afford to take a little punt on the outcome of a fifth election, and it would therefore be good if we all pulled in the well, same I think he had a point. general direction. And the other great message of Blair, I think, was that you can't hope to form a government uh, unless you occupy a fair swathe of the middle ground, the scope for how much you should uh, go for. We don't need to mop up every last Daily Mail reader, uh, but you do need uh, the middle ground. Uh, And uh, that's, you know, Blair's great achievement was to drag Labour kicking and screaming onto the middle ground and keep it there. And we forget, well, actually, no, we don't forget. I can clearly remember before the 97 election that, that you know, with, with the majority of 178 and the, the landslide, it was not obvious that Labour were going to win. There's, there's quite a lot of wobbling in, in the diaries and there was an enormous amount of wobbling, uh, you know, at the time in, in the Labour Party of a worry that either the majority might be wafer thin or that you could even... I mean, there's a, there's a point in the diaries where you say, you know, I can see it in Blair's eyes, he knows we're going to lose. Yes, I, I mean, I'm, uh, I tend to err on the side of pessimism, as anyone who's read the diaries uh, will know. Uh, and uh, indeed, I was uh, far too pessimistic uh, uh, in the run-up to the 97 election. So it has to be said with Blair. Blair never thought we'd win by more than 20 or 30 seats. And that, that broadly was my opinion. I know I did uh, predict that we might even lose uh, a week or two beforehand, but that was very temporary and changed the next day. Uh, but uh, I never thought we'd win by anything like the margin 
that we did win by, and neither did Blair. And, and almost nobody did, did they? I don't think anybody predicted it. Well, the polls were saying that for some time, but of course we had been, the polls had been proved wrong before. I think they predicted we'd win in 92 as well, and we got smashed. Uh, so nobody was relying too heavily on the polls. It's quite interesting reading these diaries, which are they're from 1994 to 99 that some of the resonances, some of the issues that you were so passionately involved with are exactly with us, almost in the same way. You mentioned Murdoch a, mo- a moment ago. And um, back then, a, a big part of your concern was to try and, and uh, dim- dim- diminish the power of, of Murdoch. And uh, there's some, at some point somebody says to you, you know, don't worry. Uh, oh, no, you said to him, he's, he's only 64 or he's, he's old, and the, the, your interlocutor said, oh, he's, he's only 64. And it turns out that he was right. The Murdoch's gone on all the way until now. Well, the person I was talking to was David Montgomery, who was then uh, the um, chief executive of Mirror Group newspapers, but had previously worked for Murdoch, I think, as editor of the News of the World. Um, so he was a man in a position to know Rupert. He didn't personally know him. Uh, and he said to me in that conversation that uh, Rupert is only happy when he's inflicting pain. And it might have been, I don't know if it would have been possible to do anything about Murdoch way, way back then, but it would clearly have been desirable if it had been possible. Yes, it wasn't just Murdoch. I mean, most of what we see and read was, is, uh, controlled by a handful of rich men and corporations who shamelessly abuse their power. And so, yes, from an early stage, my thinking was that we had to address this issue. Obviously, you've got to address it very cautiously, because if it all goes wrong they'll turn on you with an even greater ferocity. Uh, even John Major, and there's a very interesting conversation in the diaries with John Major, uh, uh, who says to me that uh, he had looked at confining ownership of the British media uh, to European EU citizens, um, in ra- rather the same way as only Americans can own large chunks of the American media, which is why Murdoch changed from being an Australian to an American. Uh, so... There was some possibility, an outside possibility of cross-party cooperation, which I think is probably the only way it could be addressed. Uh, but it wasn't politically... Although I was flagging up the subject from an early stage in the mid-90s, earlier than that perhaps, it was something that could only really be addressed politically now, I would say, because of the implosion of the Murdoch Empire, at least its British arm. It is now politically possible to do something about the great conglomerations of of media power in a way that hasn't been in the past. I'm not sure that either party is up for it yet. remains to be seen. Ed Miliband's been making some of the right noises, but I wait to see them translated into action. Another level uh, of resonance is uh, you you end up talking quite a lot about the Nolan Committee on on Parliamentary Privileges from back then, which people will remember as the cash for questions issue. And of course, that that carries on to uh, the the Parliamentary Expenses Scandal. Of course, you, you came out of the Expenses Scandal quite well in largely because you more or oh, less didn't claim any. Unscathed. Uh, um, well, no, uh, I mean, we're all vulnerable. Um, but uh, I had the great good fortune that the Daily Telegraph discovered I still had a black and white TV in my uh, London flat. Not that I was claiming for the TV, you understand, but I was entitled and did claim for the black and white television license. Which was all 45 quid, wasn't 45 it? quid. And so I was one of the... F- tiny percentage of people, a fraction of a percent, who still own a black and white TV set. So that elevated me briefly to the status of sainthood. But I take no comfort from that because uh, 
uh, it, it damaged the entire political class. The, the great expenses, but they deserved meltdown. it, didn't they, Chris? I mean, uh, the great expenses uh, meltdown, uh, for which you quite rightly say the political classes are to blame because it's something that should have been dealt with much earlier on, uh, is, however, in a way, a triumph for democracy. Um, because if you look at it now in hindsight, you can see that all the changes that needed making have been made. Uh, that is to say, uh, the rules have been tightened. There is now transparency so that uh, people will stop making unjustifiable claims merely because uh, everybody can see what they're up to these days. Uh, and in, in cases of criminality, which have been a handful, there have been prosecutions. Uh, and now there's an entirely new system in place so that none of these abuses yes. can arise in the future. Now, that's democracy working as it should uh, work, in my view. Uh, um, so... And it's happened in a way, you know, with a minimum of bloodshed, but it's 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 solved the problem. And that's well, that, how it should that's be. That's expenses. Democracy. You were always indignant, though, about abuse of privilege. You 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 get very cross in the diaries about uh, committee members wanting to go on lots of trips and the amount of money that gets spent on on foreign junkets, which um, seems to you to be a waste of public money. Well, it is a waste of public money, but much of it, not all of it, uh, and. Uh, Yes, I mean, the great weakness of the old system was that MPs got to vote on their own wages and their own allowances. Well, that's obviously completely balmy. And year after year, because we were all a bit embarrassed by it, uh, governments would promise that, don't worry, it's all going to be put right, it won't happen again, uh, some new system will be devised, your wages will be linked to some anonymous civil servant and it'll go up or down with his. But none of that ever happened, and I, I, I don't know, but I guess we're still in the position where, if not the allowances, at least the salaries may yet be voted on again by Parliament, which is just not right. When you write diaries, um, you're sort of you're offering your judgments as a hostage to fortune. Um, can, I, can I tackle you with one or two and ask you if you still think so? You, you wrote, perhaps Blair has a plan for government. Gordon doesn't, that's for sure. Was that fair? Well, I thought Gordon, in opposition, a shadow chancellor, which he was for a very long time, uh, was really not very good at it. Uh, um, but he, when he was Chancellor, actually, he was a far better Chancellor than he was Shadow Chancellor. And he obviously did have uh, some sort of plan, because sort of in the first week he, he uh, um, gave, for example, control of exchange rates to the Bank of England, which was widely hailed as a, a, a masterstroke. So, and he did actually distribute some, some wealth, though he, we all kept rather quiet about it for fear of upsetting the middle classes. Um, and that's you know, entirely a good thing. Uh, so he was a much better Chancellor than, than he, it looked at that stage, because you're talking about the mid-1990s, it looked at that stage as though he would be. But, of course, his big fault as Chancellor is that he bought into the neoliberal idea that um, of a light-touch regulation of the city and financial institutions. Indeed, annually, he went to the City of London and sung their praises in the most embarrassing terms, if you read back, uh, even as late as about mm, 2006 or seven. The only people, we all the, remember what happened in 2008. The, the only, Who could have seen that? The only people not entitled to take advantage of that, of course, are the Conservatives, because uh, their only criticism of Gordon was that the light-touch regulation wasn't light enough. Mr George Osborne was always demanding less regulation and more emulation of the Irish economy, even. I mean, it sounds bizarre now, but that's... It sounded the same bizarre George Osborne, then, who's now, who's now Chancellor of the Exchequer. It sounded bizarre then to anybody but an ideologue. Well, Osborne is, of course, an ideologue, unlike Cameron. 
another thing you pronounced on is uh, the minute Labour got into office, uh, Mandelson had the Millennium Dome, and and Labour decided to pursue the Millennium Dome project, which you thought was absolutely balmy. And you were right, weren't you? Well, it wasn't Mandelson's idea. The dome was Michael Heseltine's idea, and he basically sold it to the incoming government. He actually went to see Blair and Co. Uh, before the election uh, and kind of got them to s- sign up to it. Um, it was one of the first items that came up at the first cabinet meeting, and I think one of the secretaries of the cabinet at that time has since written uh, that possibly the only person in the room who was in favour was the Prime Minister, Mandelson not being a member of the cabinet at that time. Um, but yes, it went ahead anyway. And it did appear to be, um, yes, a big black pit into which a great deal of public money uh, was chucked. And it was certainly an embarrassment, the whole, everything surrounding it around the Millennium Celebration, including the Celebration Party itself, uh, looked a bit naff to me. Although it has to be said, I think it's worked out reasonably since then. It's been handed over to the private sector and it's now a concert arena, and it's making somebody some money, but I doubt very much whether it's repaid the public for whatever I'm it I think you're right. Invested there. Though it will also have given a boost uh, to, um, to regenerating what was a pretty run-down area of Docklands. So you've, when we look back, um, you know, there's arguments for and against, though at the time it seemed, yes, a complete waste of time to me and many other people besides. I may have given the impression that there's, it's just unleavened politics, the diaries, which of course it's not, because you were living your life, you had your family as well. There's a, a lot of very interesting material about uh, about your activities as a, as a constituency MP, which was obviously important to you. Um, there's a conversation you relate with John Pilger in which you say, in, in the diary, I don't know if you said it to him, but you say, I, I have a growing feeling that I'm wasting my life. I have to ask, was it worth it those 23, 24 years in Parliament? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. No, I've. Uh, uh, I suppose in any job one has ups and downs, and there were certainly many moments. And as I said before, I tend to err on the side of pessimism. So there were many moments of pessimism when whether one wondered when one wondered whether one was wasting one's time or not. Uh, but if one looks at it in the round, I think I was useful. But I may be wrong. It's for others to judge. Who well, knows? The, my, my only legacy may be the diaries. Well, if they are, that you could do worse than that. The diaries are um, they're very entertaining. They're funny as well in, in, in their... Uh, well, a lot of funny way. things do happen in politics. And, and they're touching. Uh, you, you made me cry with, the, uh, with your account of the, the, the death of your... Uh, old death of Joan Maynard, Joe yes. Maynard. That was a very tragic moment, that really was, yes. Um, yes, and I had two young daughters, and young children say funny things when they're age five six, seven, eight. Number one daughter thought that all men went to Parliament uh, when she was five. So she asked me one day why her friend Martha's father always came back from his Parliament every evening. He, he, he actually worked in a, a vice centre in South Shields just down the road, uh, um, whereas her dad uh, uh, didn't. He, came he home went back. for the week. <laughs> and, and, and at one point she said, she, she, she's cross with you. She said, Daddy... Go to London. No, no, that's Emma. Uh, um, Emma was two when that happened. Of course, she was born in 1995, so their dad always went to Parliament as far as uh, um, she was concerned. And so uh, uh, she was raiding the sweet jar and she was dragging a 
a, a chair that was bigger than she was across the kitchen floor so she could climb up on it and get into the suites. And she didn't see that I was watching. And when she saw me, she looked at me and said, Dad, go to London. Go to London, Dad. <laughs> Which you mostly had to do. Well, the third volume of Chris Mullins' Diaries, A Walk on Part, is published by Profile Books. It's out now. It's £25. And I think it's £25 well spent. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Tim Haig Reads Books, presented by Tim Haig. Tim Haig Reads Books is a Green Shoot production. More details can be found at www.green-shoot.com or Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.